This sermon, The Secret to Contentment, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, August 20th, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. If you're visiting, my name is Derek, as Tom said. I'm the privilege of being one of the pastors here. I have the particular privilege of bringing the Word of God this morning. Open up your Bibles, if you would, please, to Psalm 131. We've been spending uh, the summer going through the book of Psalms. Uh, As I got away a few weeks ago to plan the preaching calendar for the next 12, 13 months, I was excited to get on the calendar next June, July, and August, Sermon in the Psalms, Volume 2. We only have, believe it or not, three more weeks in the Psalms, and then uh, we will be moving on. Where we're moving on to, you can find out uh, in the Church Life Update that Tom just encouraged us to pay attention to. Would you stand with me? Let's read together Psalm 131. It's just three verses, but it is a powerful passage. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, this is your word. It's your word to us. And we now look to you. We don't look to our own understanding. We don't look to a particular preacher. We look to you and ask that your spirit would cause this word to fill our minds, to take root in our hearts, and to have a joyful and glad place in our daily lives for our good as your as your people, for the testimony of your church, this one and beyond, for the renown of our Savior, your Son, Jesus, and above all things, for your glory in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. David Pallison wrote the following article. It's part of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. It's on Psalm 131. It's titled, Peace Be Still, Learning Psalm 131 by Heart. Listen to what he writes. He says, God speaks to us in many different ways. When you hear, now it came to pass, settle down for a good story. When God asserts, I am, trust his self-revelation. When he promises, I will, bank on it. When he tells you, you shall or you shall not, do what he says. But Psalm 131 is in yet a different vein. Most of it is holy eavesdropping. You have intimate access to the inner life of someone who has learned composure And then he invites you to come along. Psalm 131 is show and tell for how to become peaceful inside. This person, we will find, is quiet on the inside because he has learned the only true and lasting composure. He shares the details of what the peace that passes understanding is like. If that's familiar, that's that's the promise we hold dear to, Philippians 4, 7. Amazingly, this man in Psalm 131 isn't noisy inside. He isn't busy, busy, busy. 
He's not obsessed. He's not on edge. The to-do list and pressures to achieve don't consume him. Ambition doesn't churn inside of him. Failure and despair don't haunt him. Anxiety isn't spinning him into a free fall. He isn't preoccupied with thinking up the next thing he wants to say. Regrets don't corrode his inner experience. Irritation and dissatisfaction don't devour him. He's not stumbling through the minefields of blind longings and fears. He's quiet inside. Are you quiet inside today? In Psalm 131, we find David asserting his confidence in the Lord. (laughs) That's what he's doing here. He is asserting his confidence in the Lord. In just three short verses, David announces to the world and to us that he has learned to trust and hope in God. And the the fruit is... And the fruit is an internal contentment that transcends his external circumstances. In the noisiness of life, as as Mr. Pallison observed, in the noisiness of life, David is quiet inside. David is quiet inside. Are you quiet inside today? Have you... Are you learning to trust and hope in God for your most basic need, the bread on your table this morning, to your greatest fear? Listen, Psalm 131 is a gift to us today because (laughs) I want that for my life. I want to be quiet in my life, and I know you do as well. But as we begin this morning, I do need to issue a caution. Though Psalm 131 is only three verses long, we cannot, we must not underestimate the difficulty of its claim on us. And there is a claim here on our lives, Christian contentment, and that is what is at the heart of Psalm 131, Christian contentment is a hard lesson to learn. I don't need to tell you that. It is a hard lesson to learn. It is not natural. It needs to be learned. We need to be taught by God. That's why the things that are happening in your life are happening in your life. He is teaching you, he is teaching me, he is teaching us to trust in him, to hope in him. It is not an easy lesson. That There is a reason if you have read Jeremiah Burroughs' book, there is a reason why he titled that the rare jewel of Christian contentment. I love what James Montgomery Boyce says about Psalm 131. He says, it is one of the easiest of all psalms to read. But its lesson is one of the hardest to learn. It's true. And as true as it is, here's the good news as we begin this morning. Contentment is a hard lesson to learn. But it is not unattainable. It isn't. Christian contentment is not unattainable. And the Lord's work in David's life shows that to us. This psalm, in part, is here so that we, too, he ends by calling Israel, hope in the Lord as I do. That call extends to us this morning by implication of the gospel and being God's people in Jesus Christ. It is not unattainable. 
I know that Psalm 131 will land on different people differently in this room. You come with strivings. You come with weariness. You come with victories. You come with fears. But at the end of the day, there is a big message here for us all. And it is not pie in the sky. It is not a wish. It is a hope. And it's this, the more we look away from ourselves to Jesus, the more content we will be. The more we look away from ourselves, that's what we see David doing this morning in Psalm 131. He is looking away from himself, the more content we will be. Regardless of your circumstance this morning, the bigger God becomes, the smaller you become and the greater your peace will be. Come what may, Monday morning. Now Psalm 131 ends with David exhorting Israel to the same peace and contentment. But first, in verses 1 through 2, David tells us how he got there. It is a work of God for sure, but like the rest of the Christian life, it is not a work of God apart from his personal faith and his intentionality. So we're going to look at Psalm 131. I've broken up into two parts. Contentment's enemy and contentment's evidence. Contentment's enemy and contentment's evidence. Notice in verse 1 what he says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. If you could reduce verse 1 to one word, it's this, pride. Pride. So David is saying, he said, I I am not proud. That's what he is getting to. In Psalm 131, we we encounter a man who has learned and is learning to resist pride and put on humility. And listen, here's one thing we know about David. David knew pride. I mean, David, few people had reasons to be impressed with themselves more than David did. Think about David's life, right? As a boy, what did he do? He killed Goliath and delivered Israel from the Philistines with a, with, a, with, a, with a little stone and a slingshot as cowering, grown men who were soldiers with real weapons in their hands stood by and watched. David, God told Samuel, the man who anointed David, he said this about David, he, see that boy, he is a man after my own heart. I don't think God has probably ever said that about me, <laughs> except for in Christ Jesus. David became a powerful king. David is familiar with the temptation to pride. David is familiar with a proud and noisy heart. In fact, go read his story. It was a proud and noisy heart that led him to stand on a rooftop and say, I want her. And then destroy others to cover it up. David is not unfamiliar with pride. David had all the reasons to be impressed with himself. But did you notice what he says in verse 2? But I have calmed and quieted my soul. See, by the time David writes this psalm, he, he has learned to put contentment's greatest enemy to death and find true contentment and peace in God. And of course, if we are going to do the same thing, we, we need to know what pride looks like. David really shows us, he gives us, this isn't, these aren't the only expressions of pride, but I would submit they are the, probably the greatest expressions of pride. And David gives us two of them in verse 1. 
First, there's a horizontal pride. That is, there's a pride in regards to, re- to relationship with others, how we relate to others. Notice verse 1 again. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up, and my eyes are not raised too high. A lifted up heart is a heart absorbed with self. There's a great comedian named Brian Regan. Anybody familiar with him? So he's got this great, I mean, the thing about Brian Regan is he knows how to capture the fallen nature. <laughs> he, he's probably not aware of it, but boy, is he good at it. And he's got this one, I don't know what you call it, one act uh, where he's talking about that person on the airplane. You know, you're bored in the airplane. And it's that person who's standing there and they're trying to get their bag into the bin up top, right? And it won't fit, but they're determined it's going to fit, so they're jamming, and meanwhile, there's 70 people behind them in this narrow little aisle waiting to get to their seat, but this person is oblivious. They don't care. You'll have to wait. I'm trying, and Brian Regan paints that picture hilariously, and he goes, you know what? That's the me monster. Me, 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 me. It doesn't matter about you, 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 you. It's all about me, me. So you'll just have to wait till I get my bag in the bin. My way. That's pride. Pride is the me monster. My way. My good. My goals. My glory. I deserve to be understood. I deserve to be recognized. I, 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 I want control, and I can handle it. I want comfort, and I demand it. I want convenience. It's a self-exalting attitude that screams, me, me, me. David says, I, I, I am not like that. My heart, I'm not absorbed with myself. And then you'll notice he continues in the second part of verse 1. He says, my eyes are not raised too high. So he says, my, my heart is not lifted up, and, and my eyes are not raised too high. That, that, that phrase, are not raised too high. You could translate that, my eyes are not haughty. You know what that word means. Haughty eyes reveal proud and noisy hearts. Haughty eyes are expressions of self-righteousness. They are expressions of self that haughty eyes look down on others. Haughty eyes are constantly comparing themselves favorably to other eyes, others. Haughty eyes look at somebody else and go, don't you know who I am? Haughty eyes are not happy for others. They're envious of others. Haughty eyes don't look to serve others. They expect to be served by others. Haughty eyes don't recognize God's grace in others. They are sinfully critical of others. Haughty eyes are not patient and gracious with others. They are quick to anger and harsh with with others. Haughty eyes, eyes lifted too high, Make for a noisy heart. Well, what I mean by that is there is a constant competing, controlling, comparing, keeping up the image and covering up the faults. It all saps your joy and contentment in Christ. David says, I I have learned to not have haughty eyes. I have learned to put to death my self-exalting attitudes. And instead I have calmed the opposite in verse 2. I've calmed my heart. 
It's quiet. I have quieted my soul of self. So, so that's the first expression of pride, those first two lines in verse 1. That, that pride, that horizontal pride in relationship to others. But then in, he ends the verse with an, another kind of pride. It's a vertical pride, re, our relationship to God. Notice what he says. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. You, you could translate that, I am not consumed. I do not preoccupy myself with figuring out God's providence in my life. That, that's the point there. The things that are too great for him to understand. The things that are too marvelous for him to understand. Because as the prophet Isaiah wrote, my, my, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. What Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, there are some things that the Lord does not let us into. There are some things that, that we do not know that he does not tell us. That's the point here. David isn't lazy. David isn't indifferent. David, he's not spiritually apathetic. I don't really care about things too much. That's not what he's saying. He's not anti-study. He is wise. He is humble. He's a man who has learned his limitations. He's learned his limitations. God is God. He's my God. He's the Lord over my life. I am not. And that's okay. In fact, that's very good. That brings calm and quiet, peace and contentment into my soul. Now listen, if you know David's story, then this is huge. To, to be content with not fi figuring out why God has done what God has done in David's life, that, that is huge. David was what? David was an ordinary shepherd boy. He was the little brother. But God chose him to be king. Saul anointed him as king. God, like I said earlier, told David, he is a, you are a man after my own heart. In other words, there are big things in store for David, and he's heard them from God himself. But then King Saul got jealous. He got jealous of David. And so he set out to take him out. He decided to get rid of David, to kill David. And suddenly, suddenly from the bright lights and hopefulness of God's own plans for David, David finds himself not living as a king in a palace, but as a refugee in a cave. Looking over his shoulder every waking moment. Why, O oh Lord? We can hear David now. How long, O oh Lord? When, O oh Lord? What about being a man after your own heart? What about being king? I don't get this. There was so much David there was so much David didn't understand. There was so much he wanted to understand. Just read the Psalms. But David at the end of verse 1, in essence, is saying, I have learned, and I am determined to control my occupation with understanding all that God is doing in my life and the why of it and the timing of it. Instead, he chose verse 2 to calm and quiet his soul before the Lord instead of arrogantly trying to figure God out. I, I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. It's a bit long. Bear with me. Contentment is the fruit of a mindset that understands its limitations. David did not allow himself to be preoccupied with God, with what God was not pleased to, pleased to give him. 
Neither did he allow his mind to become fixated on things God had not been pleased to explain to him. Such preoccupations suffocate our contentment. If I insist on knowing exactly what God is doing and what he plans to do with my future, if I demand to understand his ways with me in the past, I can never be content until I am equal with God. Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints, at the time he chooses, with the provision he is pleased to make. David learned this, and God wants us to learn it too. God wants you to learn it. He wants me to learn it. Not to just confess it and nod to it, but to learn it. And then to live in accordance with it. I, 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 I do. I, I believe this is the greatest contentment killer there is. Instead of occupying ourselves with God's character, who he is, his provision, what he has done for our sins in Christ, and his promises, like he will work all things for my good, Instead of preoccupying ourselves with those things, we are preoccupied with trying to figure God out. Why, God? Why can't I have that house? Everybody else does. Why can't I have children? Everybody else that's married. Why can't I be married like all of my friends? Why can't I? Why can't I? When will you? When will you? And it preoccupies us. And we get noisy inside. Sinfully noisy. Anselm said, I do not seek to understand that I may believe, but I believe that I may understand. I think the 11th century monk here captures the essence, the foundation of a sound Christian mind. Going all the way back to the garden. Think about the garden with me. Let's just go all the way back for a moment. Adam and Eve are there the temptation of the serpent. And what the text tells us is what was going on in Eve's mind. She said that at some point in time, she understood that that forbidden fruit, whatever kind of fruit it was, it was, it was to be desired because it would make one wise. And so she took it. Adam joined her. And that disobedience really began with discontentment. They were not content with what God had given them, with who God had made them. They wanted something else. Why would not God make me as wise as I can be? Why would he withhold something from me that would be so good for me? And they plunge the world into sin. And what happened is instead of allowing their belief about who God is and their belief about what he has commanded them to, to inform their understanding of, well, why can't we have this fruit? They looked to their understanding and said, I don't understand why we can't have this. I think that's a, a principle that, that, we, that, that, that we have to ponder and consider in the Christian Life, what I believe about God must shape my understanding of my situation. You see, my, my proud heart says, God, 
God, when I understand, once I have, once I have figured out, once I am convinced of how this difficult circumstance, you fill in the blank with your own life, once I have figured, once I understand that, once I understand that, that, that not having enough money in my checking account is somehow being worked for my good, once I understand that, then I'll believe that you do truly work all things for my good. Right? That's what we tend to do. That's what the 11th century monk is talking about. That's what David is saying he doesn't do in verse 1. But the calm and quiet soul says, God, you have promised to work all things for my good. And you cannot lie. I believe this about you. And so, even though I don't understand how this circumstance is for my good, I am content because I know you are infinitely good and always working all things for my good. I allow what I believe to be true about God from his word to shape my understanding of my situation, not the other way around, which is what we do so often. Lord, I'll believe you when I understand you. (laughs) Versus no, here's what I believe about you. And whatever my understanding is of this situation, it's going to be shaped and informed by who you are. Now listen, the, the, the weightiness and the weariness of trials, just to wear that this week, are real. You, you were all here. We're all carrying something. We all have something going on in our lives that we're going, why, oh Lord? How, how long, oh Lord? When? When will the cloud disappear? Isn't this a good desire? Why won't you grant it to me? We all have those things, those burdens, those trials, those difficulties. But here is what is even more real than those things. A God who is there and says, not just I got this, but says, all you who are weak, all you who are weary, come. Come and drink of my living waters that your soul may be satisfied, that your heart may be content. Don't preoccupy yourself with the things that are too great and too marvelous for your little, feeble, finite brain. And I say that knowing my brain is probably smaller and more feeble than yours, so don't get offended. Quit trying to figure it out and worship me. Quit trying to figure it out and follow me. Quit trying to figure it out and rest in me and my good purposes for you. No matter what degree that you know about them or not, come. And we can come because guess what? You may feel defeated this morning in whatever trial you're experiencing, but you're not. Christ has overcome the world. Christ has overcome your sin. Christ has overcome your burdens and your trials and your circumstances. They are not only there to draw you toward him, but they will have no effect or impact on your life apart from him determining this is the impact and effect that they will have. So quit trying to figure out God and start worshiping him. That's the message. That's the message. As we sang this morning, I just had a prophetic sense. We sang that song that, He will not let my soul be lost. It tied into Philippians 1, 6 in our call to worship. I thought, Lord, we we are a room full of people who just look right over that. We're so preoccupied with 
not letting the next opportunity be lost, with not allowing our reputations to be lost. And we completely lose sight and we live as if our souls are truly indeed lost. Forgetting the promise that God himself has given us, he will not let your soul be lost. And there is nothing in this life, no season of life, no treasure of life that isn't worth being lost. Especially if your soul will never be lost because it's hidden in Christ. Contentment's enemy is pride. Pride seeks to understand, exalt ourselves instead of believing God and following Him. And then finally, He, says, he shows us a picture of contentment's evidence. Notice verse 2. He says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul. I'm not proud. I have calmed and quieted my soul. And then he tells us what it's like. He says, it's like a weaned child with its mother. You know, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I love David's imagery here. <laughs> it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's brilliant. He says, my soul's like a baby weaned from his mother. Now, moms, you know this like no one else, right? That, that, that newborn, that nursing baby is on your lap for one reason, right? To get what, it, to, to get what he thinks he needs, food. He wants to eat and they know. They know when you put them up on your lap and you pull them close they know they have reached the meal table, <laughs> right? And you, if you just hold them there, you know what happens. They get fussy. They start rooting around to make that connection they need to make. And if they don't make it, they get angry. They get noisy, their little hearts are on their sleeves. They are determined and they are demanding. They want to be fed. And they're not happy until they get from you what they want. But a child weaned from their mother can sit on mom's lap with a sense of joy and peace. Not using mom to get something, but just enjoying mom's presence, just enjoying mom's love. A weaned child is, is no longer fighting and screaming and, and rooting around to try to get something. No, they, they, they are enjoying their mother, knowing that mom cares for them. Mom will tell me when it's time to eat. Now, we know that illustration does break down. <laughs> but you get the point. You get David's point. You see the imagery that he is saying. It's a content baby. No longer demanding of mom. But now just enjoying mom. So, so it is with us. David says, so it is with him. That's how he, that's how he ends verse 2. Like a weaned child from his mother being content with who, who we are in Christ, what God's will is for us. Why? Because we know, we know from Romans 8, the God who did not spare his only son for our salvation and eternity in heaven, how will he not give us all things we need? From the bread on your table, to the spouse next to you in bed, to the children in your backyard. Oh, there, there, there may be so much that we desire to be and that we desire to have and know, but, but when we learn to quiet and calm our souls, we, 
we can be content knowing that, or, 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 or it's the other way around. When we, when we understand, when we believe that God is in us, with us, and for us, oh, doesn't that bring joy and contentment? So how do we get to contentment? Our contentment is rarely the fruit of the will in real time. Our contentment isn't an act of pragmatism. It, it can't be forged through a five-step, 12-step program. Well, where does the road to contentment begin? Well, David tells us in verse 3, look what he says. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth, and forevermore. That, that's just not, that's not just a nice ending. Let's see, how am I going to wrap this up? No, he, David is saying, I, I am not proud. I, I, do not, I do not lift my eyes high. I, I do not preoccupy myself with figuring out God. I have become like a weaned child. I am at peace with, in God. Now Israel, join me. <laughs> Come. Oh, Israel, here's how. Hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. In verse 3, David essentially stops talking to God. He starts talking to us. He gives us the, the secret to his contentment. It's hope in the Lord. Turn away from the horizontal comparing and striving. Turn away from the thousand mysteries of your life that you want to know about. And turn. To God, who is good, whose love for you is everlasting, and hope in Him. Preoccupy yourself with Him. He's your hope. Now listen, for the record, biblical hope is never a wish. It is a certainty. We are not called to... Christian hope is not pie in the sky. Well, I hope... Our hope is in God, our biblical hope. The hope that David calls us to here, it's, it's a theologically informed certainty based on objective truths about God and the gospel. Truths that don't change. Truths that aren't squishy. Truths that have stood from eternity past and will stand into eternity future. Truths that are not based on your feelings or your emotions or your circumstances. Truths that are rooted in and are an expression of God himself. So it's not a wish. David doesn't say, listen, just pray and wish. He says, no, hope. Set your hope on the Lord. Our hearts are loud and noisy because we misplace our hope. That's, that's the problem. We're, pride, we're proud because we misplace our hope. We, we place our hope in our striving. We, we place our hope in our doing. We put our hope in particular results and timing that, that is always driven by our personal desires. That is false hope. That is arrogant hope. That is no hope at all. So where's your hope today? Where's your hope today? In, in, the, in these three verses, listen, David is pretty general, right? He paints a good picture for us. Contentment, contentment's enemy. He gives us an illustration, evidence of being content in the Lord is, is like a weaned child. But he's pretty general, no particular. He says, oh, hope in the Lord. Well, this is why I believe it's no accident that Psalm 131 follows Psalm 130. Look at Psalm 130 real quick. Look what it says. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and I what? And in his word I hope. In his promises I hope. On this side of the cross, in the living word, his son Jesus Christ, I hope. And then notice verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? 
For with the Lord, there is steadfast love. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He is always working all things for your good. But more than that, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The Lord is good. His love is steadfast and enduring forever. He has redeemed you from the grips of Satan and from the penalties of your sin that are eternal in nature and unfathomable in their horrors. But God has changed all of that. Hope in the one whose word is unfailing towards you. Hope in the one whose love for you is steadfast. And it's, it's not that he will just never withhold his love. It's that his love is always at its maximum infinite capacity. His love for you does not waver. Hope in the one who erases your sin and declares you righteous, taking care of your greatest need. The one thing that shapes your eternity He has given you pardon in heaven. Hope in the God who is not frantic, not anxious. He's not out of control as he looks at your life. He has an unthwartable plan for every second of your life. Hope in him. Look to him. Is your heart noisy this morning? It's not because, listen, all all due respect, it's not because of your circumstances. It's because of a misplaced hope. You've taken your eyes off your Savior and you have forgotten not only the future that He has secured for you, but the promises that he has given you for today. Don't blame other people. Don't blame the world. Christ has overcome the world. You have nothing to fear. Don't blame your boss. Don't blame your pastor. Don't blame your community group leader. Don't blame your friend that doesn't listen and they don't really understand. Don't blame. Look and hope to Jesus. As the worship team comes up, I want to end by helping us personalize Psalm 131. Let me be brief here. Three ways. Identify where pride exists in your life and repent. That's the pattern of the Christian life. (laughs) Identify where pride exists in your life. Pride, I promise you, is the source of your noisy heart. And know this, as you run to him, he will be merciful. (laughs) He will not turn you away. Just as a father, every father in this room would not turn away help to their child, God will even more so never turn away for Christ has secured your place at the throne of mercy. Second, let what you believe, fill in the blank, what is going on in your life today? Let what you believe shape your understanding of that situation, not the other way around. (laughs) God's plan for you is unthwartable. His love towards you is unfailing. And his power at work in you is unmatchable. Whatever your circumstance is. Do not doubt any of those things. Because of, because of your understanding of your circumstance. Or your lack of. But rather believe these things. And see your circumstance. And how you understand it through what's true about God, and then finally pursue Jesus passionately. Listen, there's a single person in this room who will change by sitting on the couch and saying, Lord, you have to change me. 
That's a true statement. But he changes us as we look to him. Pursue Jesus passionately. Listen, this is really important. No one in this room can produce contentment in the Lord. We pursue it. <laughs> we pursue it. We pursue, like David, a calm and quiet soul. How? By pursuing the one who not only gives us hope, but is our hope, Jesus Christ. Listen, I know, it's paradoxical, right? It drives us crazy. <laughs> it's one of those things that are too marvelous for us, too great for us. But the truth is, because of Jesus, you can resolve to be calm and quiet. And at the same time, he is your calm and quiet. I read somewhere this week, I can't remember, I'm probably going to butcher it, I don't remember who wrote it, but somewhere in my study, I read, I, I, I read, the gospel does not command us to be calm. It is our calm. <laughs> yes, excellent. And so we pursue, we set our eyes on the one who is our calm and quiet. It's not in self-sufficiency that you will find contentment. It's in Christ's sufficiency that you will be content. He, he is the living word of God that reveals God's steadfast love to you and forever redeems you to himself. And so he is utterly worthy of and utterly trustworthy for providing and being the object of your hope. Mr. Powelson ends his article by saying this, live the mindset of Psalm 131. When you set your hope in the right place, you become just the right size. <laughs> no pride, no looking down from on high, no hot pursuit of pipe dreams. <laughs> The soul storms meet their master, and he says, be quiet, shh, peace, be still. The more we look away from ourselves to Jesus, the greater contentment we will experience. Let's stand and sing.